All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a Daily Power Parsha for Tuesday, December 21st, 2021. Lots of twos. I will tell you that yesterday my son came to me and said the following. He said that on February 22nd, it's going to be 02, 22. It's 0222-2022. And it's a Tuesday. Oh, <laughs> look at that. That's, that was his addition. And it's a Tuesday. Literally and figuratively. Okay, why am I saying that? I don't know. It's December. It's 12, 21, 21. So it's got its own unique rhyme and rhythm to it. And we are ready to roll. Uh, by the way, this morning, we celebrated here in Atlanta, the Chumash party for my son, Eli. My son, Eli, is seven years old, and he had his Chumash party. What's a Chumash party, you might ask? First of all, it's great to clear the throat, Chumash party. So when, when the kids are in first grade, they have their Siddur party, which is they get their first Siddur, their first prayer book, and it's a whole, there's a ceremony and speeches, and it's a whole, they sing, and they, the whole, whole spiel, and they get their Siddur. In second grade, they get their first chumash. They get their first copy of the chumash. Not, not all five books. They start with one. And uh, super beautiful celebration. And the theme, therefore, of today is Torah study. Right? It's always the theme, but especially today, even Ellie got in on the action bright and early. Okay, what I want to do is um, jump into... Oh, where are we here? Hold on. Where did my tab go? Found it. All right, I want to jump into the Torah reading. Torah reading is Shemot. Yesterday we started, and it was already super dramatic. Um, the book of Shemot, the book of Exodus, begins with the Jewish family in Egypt. The Torah recounts, the Torah recalls the family of Yaakov, the 12 sons, the 12 tribes who came down to Egypt. The Torah tells us that they were fruitful and they multiplied and that Pharaoh, a new Pharaoh, either literally a new Pharaoh or figuratively a new Pharaoh, a new Pharaoh decides he doesn't like the Jews. The Jews are a threat. Decree after decree. I explained yesterday the, the gradual evolution of decrees that got worse and worse and worse until such point in time at the end of the first reading where Pharaoh says to the midwives, the Jewish midwives, Kill all the firstborn Jewish, not all firstborn, kill all the, the baby boys born to the Jewish people. The girls you can live, but get rid of the boys. Well, that didn't happen. That didn't happen. The midwives didn't listen, right? Midwives fear God. They did not do as the king of Egypt had spoken to them. Rather, they enabled the boys to live. At the begin then we jumped into the second reading. We did a, the first few verses of the second reading, which where Pharaoh confronts the Jewish midwives and says, Hayitachen, which is Hebrew for, how dare you? How dare you do this? You're letting the boys live. I have, it on, I have a report that says the boys are, are being born and, and living. What's going on? And they said, it's not our fault. They lied and said, it's not our fault. This is an instance where you're allowed to lie to save a life. Um, they said, it's not our fault. The, the, women, the Jewish women... They, they, they act as their own wives. They give birth before we even get there. It's not our fault. All right, that's the end of that piece of it. Um, the Torah tells us that God benefited the midwives. And uh, God made houses for them. And I, I don't remember if we did the Rashi on this, but let's, uh, let's see quickly what that is. Yeah, he made houses for them, for the midwives. Well, who, who were the midwives? If you recall the midwives, the two midwives, Shifra and Pua, are really Yocheved and Miriam, the mother of Moses and the sister of Moses. Well, what kind of houses did God make for them? The houses of the priesthood. God granted that that family, the, Levit the, Levit the Levitic family, should come from them. And the royal family as well, which are called houses, as it is written, and he built the house of the Lord and the house of the king, the priesthood and Levitic family from Yocheved, and the royal family from Miriam, as is stated in Tractate Sota in the Talmud. So basically, Yocheved 
is the matriarch, one of the matriarchs of the Levitic dynasty, the Levites. Well, her son, Aaron, was the priest, the high priest. Her son, Moshe, Moses, which we haven't read about his birth yet, was the head of the, was, was a Levite and, and Moses. So that's that. And Miriam, Miriam herself, she was married. Miriam married. Did Miriam marry Kalev, Caleb? I forget who Miriam married. Anyway, but she married someone from the house of, from the house of, from the family of Yehuda of Judah. And it's her um, descendants that ultimately would become the royal family. So priesthood from Yocheved, royalty from Miriam. This was their reward for standing up to Pharaoh and not killing the Jewish baby boys. I'm going to say what I said yesterday at the end. There was one day that Pharaoh extended the, the decree of murdering, God forbid, murdering the baby boys to all of Egypt, to all of the Egyptians. That's the day that's quoted in verse 22. Pharaoh, on, on a certain day, commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the Nile, and every daughter you shall allow to live. This is not just the Jewish boys. This is every boy. Why? Why suddenly is he t- telling his own Egyptian populace to kill their boys? Rashi explains all his people. Pharaoh issued this decree upon them as well. Them meaning the Egyptians. On the day Moses, listen to this. Back in Rashi, on the day Moses was born, his astrologers told him, today the one who will save them has been born. But we do not know. The stars, our stargazing can't tell us whether he will be born from the Egyptians or from the Israelites. But we see what what they saw for sure is that he will ultimately be smitten through water. So they, 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 they couldn't get clarity in their vision. They didn't get clear whether this was an Egyptian-born child or a Jewish-born child. But they did see clearly that his downfall would come through water. So therefore, on that day, Pharaoh issued a decree also upon the Egyptians. As it is said in the verse that we just read, every son is born who is born, you shall kill. And it does not say every son who is born to the Hebrews. Right? Look at verse 22, back inside, right over here. Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, every son who is born, you shall cast into the Nile. It doesn't say every Hebrew son that's born cast into the Nile. It says every son. Every son means even Egyptian. All of this was based on astrological prediction. Based on the astrologers, Pharaoh said, let's continue. They did not know, the astrologers did not know, however, that Moses would ultimately suffer because of the water of Meribah, i.e. that he would not be permitted to enter the Holy Land. So his life is on some level cut short, or his life, kind of, his life's mission comes to an end based on hitting the rock to produce water instead of speaking to the rock, as we've discussed many a time in the book of Numbers. The point here is that his downfall did come through water, but not in the way that the astrologers thought. The astrologers thought they could force the issue. Ah, so the the Redeemer is born today. We don't know whether he's Egyptian or Jewish, but we know he'll be the Jewish Redeemer at some point. We see the downfalls through water. Throw all the boys into the Nile today. Well, it doesn't really work. You can't outsmart the system. Just because they had a vision doesn't mean that you could then subvert it or outsmart it or preempt it, which they tried to do. It didn't work. What, What did happen, in fact, Moshe was born on that day, as we'll read in a moment. He was born on that day to a Jewish family, but raised by Egyptians, namely Pharaoh and his daughter, and ultimately did have his downfall through water. All, everything that they saw was correct, but they didn't know exactly what they saw. In other words, the prediction, the, 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 the stars predicted accurately, but they didn't know exactly what they were saying. This is what the Talmud says. Talmud says that the astrologers, they see, but they don't know what they're seeing. They, they, um, they have a vision, but they don't really fully understand their own vision. This is the powerful message of the story of the astrologers and the horrific decree to throw all boys born in Egypt on that day into the Nile River. Okay, questions or comments on that? Donna. 
So were the astrologers actually reading the stars? Yes. Yes. These astrologers knew how to read the stars. By the way, these were not Jewish astrologers. These were Egyptian astrologers. This is one of the reasons why in Judaism we don't, we don't seek out astrological uh, predictions. Number one, because you can see something. First of all, who says the person that you're seeking at all, that you're consulting at all has any type of ability? Could just be a total sham, number one. Number two, even if they did have ability, the only guarantee with ability is that you'll see something but the next step is interpreting what you saw, and that's entirely a game of chance. Remember, um, remember um, Joseph in the dreams? So Pharaoh could tell him what he dreamt, but it was Joseph, guided by Hashem in that moment, who could tell him what it meant. So that's the extra piece. Like the astrologers can tell you what the dream is. So they told, I mean, dream euphemistically, right? So the astrologers told Pharaoh, here's what we saw the Redeemer's born. The line between Egyptian and Jew is, is a little bit crossed, so it could be either. And water. That's all they saw. They then wove a narrative, ah, let's do this. Let's take a plan of action. But that's completely arbitrary. That's completely arbitrary and up and, and, and just dependent on, on the, the interpretation of the individual, which does not mean that it's correct. It's just someone's, someone's opinion. And this is why, according to Rambam, the whole field of astrology is he calls it he calls it a baba maisa. It's the whole thing is fake. Yeah, he says it's not a chachma. It's not a skill. It's not a skill that you can. It's not a chachma. Why? Because even if you do see something, first of all, do you know that it's accurate? Number two, do you know how to accurately interpret it in in real time? It's a completely different different piece of it. Well, how does that? But we do look for good constellations, right? Where? Blessing, like Mazel? Mazel Tov, you don't look for constellations. Oh. Mazel Tov is we wish that somebody who is born or has an occasion or whatever it is, we wish that it all should work out. But we're not trying to manufacture with the signs. We're saying that the Mazel, their Mazel should be good. They should have good, good fortune. Yeah, it's a good thing. Good blessing. Exactly. But exactly what it means to tell someone, I see, based on when you were born and based on this and based on that, this is what it means. That's already, number one, who says it's legit. Number two, what's that? I mean, really, number two is also who says it's legit. Now, who says they could see anything? Number two, even if they see something, who says they can drill it down into real time as to what it means here? And third of all, is that really what we should be doing with our time, which is consulting what's going to happen based on the stars? Because anyway, if it's something good, we would have to make it happen. And if it's something bad, we could avoid it. So either way, might as well spend our time doing good things and avoiding negative things than, you know, consulting various um, so-called experts. That's, that's really the Jewish perspective. All right. But it uh, does seem like there's a lot of dreaming and... And consulting the stars in yes. Egypt, they yes. didn't have Joseph to interpret what they saw. They didn't. If they only had Joseph, he probably would have misdirected them anyway. Anyway, he would not. He would probably not say, "Hey, there's a baby that's born. Check the Nile River and have him hit a rock." I mean, he probably would not like. Anyway, all right. Also, the other message here is you can't force destiny. Like, if this is supposed to play out and the destiny is that he's going to ultimately be confronted with this challenge by the water hitting the rock or speaking to the rock, that's something that's going to happen when he's, you know, 100 and, uh, uh, sorry, when he is, how old was he? Like 119 years old. That's going to happen years later. Like, what are you going to do? You, you try to, like, force the issue now by throwing him into the Nile River? That's going to make it happen? I mean, the whole thing doesn't make sense. But again, the Talmud says they saw, but they didn't know what they were seeing. All right. Fine. Next, back inside. Let's continue with our text. Now, this is the Moses birth story. Exodus chapter 2. So a man of the house of Levi, a Levite from the, fam from the family of Levi, went and married a daughter of Levi. So they're from the same, I mean, they weren't you know, siblings. They were cousins, second cousins, whatever it is. They were from the Levitic family. So a guy marries a girl. I will tell you that they were already married, but they had separated. They had been married, but they separated. 
who were they? Amram and the aforementioned Yocheved. Amram was the husband. Yocheved was the wife. They were both from the tribe of Levi. They had two kids. Miriam, the aforementioned midwife assistant, and Aaron, who would later become the high priest. Moses wasn't yet born. And at that point, that's when the most severe decree of Pharaoh hit about getting rid of the boys. And so what does, your, what does Amram, what does the father do? Amram says to his wife, let's, uh, let's not have any more children. Let's separate. Let's call it quits because it's too dangerous. There's this, this violent decree against boys being born. We can't, uh, you know, we can't, we, we can't be part of this and, 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 and having more children only to see them be murdered or, 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 or try to, to, to be murdered. And so they separated. Some say he even wrote her a, 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 a bill of divorce, a get. And what happened was, because of Amram, and Amram, Amram was, a, was a prominent Jew, so others followed suit as well. Well, if, if the rabbi is separating from his wife, or maybe even divorcing her because of this decree, so then we're also going to do the same thing. Miriam, the oldest daughter, the oldest child who was a daughter, was a girl, Miriam, who was also very smart and a prophet as well, Miriam goes over to her father and she says to him, with all due respect and paraphrasing, you are worse than Pharaoh. She said, his daughter says to him, she was, how old was she? Six years old or eight years old? I forget exactly. Between, maybe seven, between six and eight years old. She says to him, you, dad, are worse than Pharaoh. Because Pharaoh only decreed about the boys, that the boys shouldn't live. But by you separating from mom and causing everyone else also, you know, to look at you and also separate from their wives, no children, even the girls, are going to be, uh, are, no girls will be born either. He listened to his daughter. He got the message. And he remarried. He reconnected with his wife. This is the message of the opening verse. That says a man from the house, a man of the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. This word married is really remarried. They got back together. They got back together again. Let me see if there's a Rashi that says this. Yeah, Rashi says this. Everything that I told you is straight up Rashi from the Talmud. Rashi says he, Amram, was separated from her because of Pharaoh's decree. And then he remarried her. Right? This is the meaning of he went. What does it mean he went and married her? That he followed, went after his daughter's advice. Who saved the Jew? You understand what's going on here? Who saves the Jewish people? Everyone says Moses. But how did Moses begin? A little girl who stood up to her own father respectfully and said, Dad, I think what you're doing is not 100% kosher. Miriam is the hero of this story. We don't always notice it, but Miriam is the hero of this story. He followed his daughter's advice that she said to him, your decree is harsher than Pharaoh, whereas Pharaoh issued a decree only against the males, you issued a decree against the females as well, for none will be born. Yeah, so he took her back and he married her a second time. It seems like, according to this, he did actually write her a, a bill of divorce and they formally separated. They formally... And she too was transformed to become like a young woman physically, but she was actually 130 years old. According to this tradition, she was 130. Remember, Yocheved, she was the one that was born when they came to Egypt between the walls. The Chom was between the walls and they stayed there 210 years. When they left, Moses was 80. If so, when she conceived him, she was 130 years old. Yet scripture calls her a daughter of Levi, which means that her, her youth was rejuvenated. Boy, do I have a cream for you. Anyway, what's the point? The, <laughs> the point is, the Yocheved, it's the... Uh... Anyway, here's the point. Such a beautiful, I, I mean, everything here is so rich, so rich in meaning. So Amram is one of the leader, leadership of the Jewish people. He's a, he's a Levite. Yocheved is the, is the wife. 
She was the number 70. We spoke about this a few weeks ago when they were counting the 70 Jews that came down. It was only 69. How'd you get 70? Yochever was born on the border, between the walls, it says, between the walls, uh, the thick walls of, of the border walls. She was born then. Yochever is married to Amram. They get divorced. He divorces her. says, look, I love you, but can't have any more kids. We got this decree. Comes along their daughter, Miriam, saves the day. She speaks up. What is this? Speaking truth to power. And she tells her own father respectfully. He says, you're worse than Pharaoh. He only decreed against the males. You're also preempting, right? Essentially, you're destroying the girls also. Preempting girl, Jewish girls from being born. He gets the message. He remarries her. And this is what happens next. Verse number two. The woman, his Yochavet, conceived and bore a son. Now, understand this. The Egyptians were counting. But you think the Egyptians didn't have intel? They had intel. They had intel that Amram and Yochever remarried. And they figured if they're remarrying, you know, one thing might lead to another and there might be a baby born in about nine months or so. So now they started the clock. They kept the calendar and they started the clock. Okay, so here's what happened. The woman conceived and bore a son according to our tradition. And not our tradition. The story is that Moses is born prematurely. Moses born already in the seventh month, or at seven months, the end of six months. He was born about three, almost three months early. When she saw, so what happens is that he's born early. So now there's no authorities on her case. She, remember, she's a midwife. Her daughter's a midwife. They're very capable of giving birth. She's very capable of, of giving birth. She has a son. Okay, what's his name at this point? According to our tradition, his name, we, we have multiple names, options that he might have been called. It might have been Tuvia or other names. Let's just use Tuvia. Tuvia means good, as we'll see soon. Now, when she saw that he was, so what happened when he was born, the Torah says, and when she saw him, that he was good, kitovu. she saw that he was good, so she hid him for three months. Why three months? Because that's how long she had on the clock until the Egyptians came knocking to find out what's going on with this baby, what's going on with this child. So she hid him. She had a three-month head start to hide him because she, she gave birth premature. But the Torah also says that, that he was good, that it was good when he was born. What does that mean he was good? According to our sages, when he was born, the entire house filled with light. The whole house filled with light. There was a radiance. Whether you read that as a physical radiance, an illumination, or a spiritual radiance and illumination, either way, the house was filled with light. It was shvateros tovu. Tov is good, right? If you want to see the Hebrew right there, tov is good. Hence the name tovya. Many say that he was called tovya, which is tov, yurke, which is the, the goodness of God with this blessing. Now, fast forward three months, she can no longer hide him. Why can't she hide him anymore? Because now the Egyptians are going to come by and say, they're going to, they're going to knock on the door and say, are you still pregnant? Where's the baby? What's going on? When she could no longer hide him, what'd she do? She took for him a reed basket. So she got a basket. Today we would call this a Moses basket. She, okay. That was a joke or not. She smeared it with clay and pitch. Placed the child into it and put it into the marsh at the, at the Nile's edge. So she takes a basket. She waterproofs it. She ad hoc waterproofs it. Places the baby, the three-month-old child inside and puts it by the Nile. Okay, once again, Miriam saves the day. His sister, Miriam, stood from afar to know what would be done to him. She is not leaving him, her brother. She's not leaving her baby brother, the three-month-old baby. She's, again, six, seven, eight, whatever she... The baby's now by the Nile River. She's watching. She's going to see what happens with this kid. The story continues, Pharaoh's daughter, her name was Batya, her name became Batya, daughter of God. Pharaoh's daughter went down to bathe, according to some commentaries. She went to dip, to use the Nile as a mikvah, to convert to Judaism. You heard me correct. According to one tradition, she went down to bathe, not just to bathe. 
she went down to use it as a mikvah to the Nile. Okay, so she was already team Jew. She was already on a, you know, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a Jewish friendly space. So she goes down to the Nile and her maidens were walking along the Nile. Her maidens means her assistant. She had, you know, she was the princess, the, the daughter of Pharaoh. She certainly had an entourage wherever she went. They were walking along the Nile and she saw the basket. She saw the basket in the midst of the marsh and she sent her maidservant and she took it. The simple understanding of the story is that she saw this basket. She told her maidservant, hey, go collect that basket. Go, go bring that basket to me. What's inside? There's a deeper story, which I've shared many times. The Hebrew word of maidservant for maidservant is amasa. Amasa. Our sages tell us that amasa is also related to the Hebrew word or Aramaic word ama. Ama means the length of the arm. Ama is the length of the arm. Amasa means not that she sent her maidservant, but she sent her arm. She sent her arm. And according to this tradition, she stretched out her arm and her arm miraculously extended. The basket was a bit away and she stretched out her arm and it unfolded almost or extended. Ama, al-ama, arm by arm. In other words, arm length by arm length by arm length. She was able to reach the basket. She took the basket. Two different traditions. I happen to like the extendo arm version. That's very cool to me. I like that one. I always think of like, um, uh, like a tape measure type thing. Ooh, like comes out like that. Clown. Yeah, so that's good. That's the story. What happens now? She's got the basket. So verse 6. Clearly the basket was intriguing. And now she opens to see the contents of the basket. She opened the basket and she saw him, the child. She saw him, the child. She saw the child, the boy. And behold. Behold, the child was weeping. Here it, call, here it says, interesting translation, and behold, he was a weeping lad. He was a weeping lad. So either you could translate it as, and behold, the lad was weeping, or he was a weeping lad, almost defining him by the weeping. Interesting way of, of translating it. And she had compassion on him. So she finds this child, this baby in this basket, and the baby is bawling in the basket, bawling, i.e. crying. And she has Rachmanis, Batachmal, literally the same word as Rachmanis, Tachmal, right? She had Rachmanis, she had compassion on him. And she said, This one is one of the children of the Hebrews. She could tell. She could tell on multiple levels. Oh, forgot to say, forgot to mention. One of the reasons, one of the explanations for why it says that when Moses was born, that it was, he was good. According to some commentaries, it means that he was born circumcised. He was born already with the circumcision. In other words, he wasn't born with a foreskin. So he was born already. I mean, you would still, halakhali, you would still have to draw blood or something, even if there was no actual um, skin to cut away. Nonetheless, he was, he had the mark of a Jew, even you know, from birth. So she says, she opens up the basket, opens up the blanket, and she says, all right, we've got a Jewish kid here. I forget in the movie, Ten Commandments. Remember the movie? Charlton Heston? Yeah. Was it that you recognized the blanket? The blanket was a Jewish blanket? I, f I think they did a twist over there. The blanket, yeah, Marcus. It's like a red blanket. It's been years, but like some blanket looked with Jewish markings on it. Maybe because they didn't want to open up the blanket and show how she recognized in other ways, but they kept it PG or whatever it was. But nonetheless, she recognizes that indeed this is a Jewish kid. Remember, the, the, the story is amped up when you, when you consider that she very well may have been on that day converting to Judaism. And now she finds this Jewish kid, this Jewish baby boy. So his sister, listen to this, mind-blowing. Miriam, third time she saves the day. His sister, Miriam, said to Pharaoh's daughter, if you read this story, not you personally, but I'm saying if one reads the story and misses the whole Miriam angle on this, man, oh man, a Shevitz, we're, then we're just straight up missing the story. Like, 
Miriam plays a central role in this whole in this whole episode. Listen to what happens next. Game changer. Miriam once again. His sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall, oh, shall I go and call for you a wet nurse from the Hebrew women so that she shall nurse the child for you? Remember, this young woman who found this baby, she wasn't pregnant. She didn't have a kid, right? So how is she going to nurse this baby? baby needs to eat. What are you going to do? This is before Gerber's. Gerber's. Remember Gerber's? This is before... Um, Beach Nut. Beach Nut? Did I just make up a brand? Is there something called Beach Nut? I think there's something called Beach Nut. This is before food processors. Okay, maybe they could take, you know, sweet potato and mush it with their hands. I'm sure they could figure that out. But like, what's the baby going to eat? Three months old. So this little girl who happens to be standing by watching what's going on, you can imagine with jaws dropped, this girl steps up now to Pharaoh's daughter and says, I have an idea for you. I, as a Jewish girl, should I call someone from the Jewish community, perchance, to nurse this Jewish baby? And Pharaoh's daughter likes the idea. Pharaoh's daughter said, go. So the girl went. And who do you think she called? She called the child's mother, who was also her mother, who was Yochever. You see what's going on here? You see what's going on here? It's Miriam who's watching what's going on, tells Pharaoh's daughter, let me call a wet nurse. She says, sure. And she brings the mother of the baby. And so now mother and baby are reunited. Listen to this. One, 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 let me just continue another verse. One more verse. Actually, let's just do two more verses, then we're going to get the commentary. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, said to Yocheved, the mother, take this child, your child, I don't know that she knew that it was her child, but take this child and nurse him for me. And I will give you wages. I'll pay you. Listen to this. Are you ready? Mother and son are now reunited. And now Yochev is getting paid to nurse her own son. She's getting paid to feed her own son. She's now on, uh, on the payroll from the palace. Some Egyptian palace payroll for being a mother, essentially, to her own son. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And for all those years, for all those years, the nursing years, she was where? Sorry, he was where? At home. The child grew up and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. What does it mean grew up? He was weaned from nursing. And at that point, she brings her son, who would become Moses, be called Moses in a moment. She brings her son to Pharaoh's daughter. And he became like her son, like her adopted son. She named him Moses. She, um, the daughter of Pharaoh, named him Moses. And she said, why, why Moses? Why Moshe? Let's do a Hebrew. Moshe. Which means I drew him from the water. For I drew him, Mishisihu, drew him from the water. Minamayim. How did, you know, how did the daughter of Pharaoh, how did Bacha get this child? Because she took him out of the water. My Mishisu. Moshe, that sticks. What's interesting is a few things. I mean, we're going to go back. There's more. Mark wants to say something. But there's, there's a lot to talk about here. But just one, one quick note. We don't go by Mo, Mo, Moshe. Moses is called Moses. Moshe. Not by his, the, the name his parents gave him. We don't even know exactly. There's different opinions about what name his parents gave him. We're not 100% clear. The Torah mentions only one name, Moshe. That becomes his name. The Egyptian princess, who may have, may or may not have converted to Judaism, the Egyptian princess who rescues this child, she gets the naming rights. It's the power of saving a life. Yeah, that's one, that's one message, power of saving a life. Another message is, according to Kabbalah, draw, drawing him from water means water is symbolic of spirituality. Water, just like um, it, water is, is completely, um, uh, um, things are completely submerged in water. Water completely submerges things. Like, so the spiritual realms are completely submerged in divine awareness. Not like us. I mean, present company excluded. Like, 
you know, people are like, eh, connected, disconnected, whatever. We're plugged in, then we get distracted. But in a spiritual environment, a spiritual realm, it's like, it's just like being underwater. It's like just totally inundated with divine awareness. Moses was taken from the water. Moses was a water soul. He wasn't a land soul. He was a water soul. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Water is symbolic of spirit. I'm sorry, but was it... Did she give him a Hebrew name? I mean, was it Hebrew? Moshe was not Hebrew. Yeah. No, it's the Egyptian name. I mean, it, I, I don't know what name it was. It was, I don't know. It, it was a new name. It was a new name. But in Hebrew, well, Oh, you're saying, oh, you're saying Drew who is Hebrew. I, so that's a good question. I'm not sure exactly how that works. But she, I think it would have been considered an Egyptian name. I think so. I think so. I mean, there's some similarity, maybe. Yeah. The wording. Yeah. It's a good question. Uh, yeah. But anyway, it's kind, it's kind of cool and interesting, and I think very telling on many levels, that the name that the Torah uses, the name that we know, the name that sticks, is from the daughter of Pharaoh. Number one, the power of saving a life, of extending your hand to, to help someone else out. And number two... The spiritual idea of drawing from water. He's drawn from water. By the way, all souls come from a spiritual realm. If you're wondering, well, how is Moses' soul different? Every soul started off on high. That's true. But there are different levels. Even in, in the spiritual realms, there are still different levels. There's, there are lower souls and higher souls. Moses was one of those higher souls. How do you explain it? I don't know. He was a tzaddik. He was, I mean, he was Moses, so he had a very lofty soul. All right, um, Mark, jump in. Actually, several things. Yeah. Um, I'm just not remember what I was going to say. Um, go on a second. Let me find. Let me find my note on that. So. No worries. One second. Um, Let me find this up. Go ahead. Go yeah, so I want to mention, okay, so let's get back. Let's, let's go back and do some Rashi's. So Rashi said, why could his mother no longer hide him? I mentioned this outside, but let's read it inside. Rashi says, because the Egyptians counted her pregnancy from the day that Amram took her back. They were counting from when that remarriage happened. And she bore Moses, or the child to be later named as Moses, she bore him after only six months and one day. She was in her seventh month of pregnancy, but only after six months and one day. For a woman who gives birth to a seven-month child may give birth after incomplete months. In other words, it's possible that a child will be viable after six months. And they searched after him at the end of nine months. Fine, that's when they looked for him after nine months. Um, we have some grammatical stuff. Rashi. Rashi, Rashi. Daughter, uh, Pharaoh's daughter was bathing in the Nile. Okay. Ba -ba 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 -bum. Let's keep on going. Here. Her maidservant, she sent, so simply, she sent her maidservant to collect the basket. Um, our sages, however, in the Talmud, interpreted it as an expression meaning a hand. Following the rules of Hebrew grammar, it should have been vowelized Amasa. Amasa. They, however, interpret am, uh, as Amasa to mean her hand, that she stretched out her hand and her arm grew many cubits. That's what I told you before. Her arm grew many cubits, extended, so that she could reach the basket. Um, oh, she opened it and she saw him. Who did she see? The child. That's a simple explanation. She opened the basket. She looked in the basket, opened up the blanket, and she saw the child. However, the Midrashic interpretation, a deeper interpretation, which I did not mention before, is that she saw the Shekhinah with him. She saw the divine presence. When it says that she opened the basket and she saw him, Vatarehu, she saw him, she saw divine God, divine presence, and the child. I guess that's why they translate it weird, to, to leave that opening. Right? She opened the basket and she saw him and the child. Him would be capital H over there. She saw the divine presence. And the child. Um, oh, listen to this. A little wrinkle that he did not mention. The sister says to Pharaoh's daughter, hey, should I call a Hebrew woman 
So Rashi says this teaches us that she had taken him around to many Egyptian women to nurse. She had tried Egyptian uh, wet nurses, but he did not nurse because he was destined to speak with the Shekhinah. He would not have any nursing from an Egyptian woman. This is a man who would eventually speak with God. So it had to be only, uh, only his mom. That's con- um, yes. Yeah, that was one of the things I was going to mention. <coughs> that um, uh, she said, I'll, I'll find a, a wet nurse from among the Hebrews. Yeah. Uh, but there's actually a note here from uh, most Rabbah. That's what... Uh, Medrash, yeah. It says, Moses would not nurse from the Egyptian women because the taste of their non-kosher foods was evident in the milk. There you go. There you go. There you go. That's an extra layer to it. Wow. In other words, yeah, I guess the milk, which is coming from, uh, you know, whatever, it's the, ultimately connected to the physiology. Da, da, da. So that, that was problematic. Very interesting. Very interesting. Okay. Um, oh, she said to the mom, uh, she said to the, to the Jewish woman who was going to nurse him, take this child. Or here's the child. She prof- Rashi says she prophesied, but she did not know what she prophesied. She said, this one is yours. She said, take this one. She didn't realize she was giving the child back to his mom. <laughs> she had no idea. So Rashi clearly says, based on the Talmud and the Medrash, that Batya, the, the Pharaoh's daughter, when she gave Moses to this Jewish woman to nurse, she did not realize that this was the mom. Okay, here we go. There's only one Rashi uh, we, uh, left. Yeah. The note I have on that... Is Pharaoh's daughter used the word halichi, trilspog, which yeah. conveyed, rather than the more common uh, Jesus smell, kihi, uh, take. Right. As it can be understood as a combination of the words hai shalichi. Right. Here is that which is yours. Right. Pharaoh's daughter thus unknowingly acknowledged that Moses belonged to the family of Yochebed. Yeah. And so that's what David told. What's David told? It's a commentary. It's a super commentary in Russia, yeah. Good. Halichi is, this, this one is yours. Yeah. So it's not just take this child, but she's acknowledging, even without knowing it, that this is yours. I, the next Rashi is really grammatical. It's a long Rashi, but it seems very grammatical, so we're going to skip that. I want to just, so, um, oh, hold on, where are we now? We are up to which reading? Second reading. Today is really the third day of the week, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. So let's, hold on, give me a second here. Oh, Can I have a fun comment? Yeah, yeah Joy, jump in. Said, yeah, for sure. Um, the water. Yeah. I think the water is really, really big because they had the prophecy that he would destroy them from the water, and he's drawn from the water, and later he uses the water, and then, of course, when they leave Egypt, the water, everything is surrounding the water. I like that. I like that. A lot of water surrounding the Moses experience, right? There's the, you're right, there's the astrological prediction about him in the water. There's him being put into the Nile River, which is almost, you know, if we think about it, I, let me just say, I, we're not going to go further. We're going to end it over here. So let's, we'll, we'll round out this conversation. So I think like this, isn't it interesting, pursuant to what you just said, Joy, that um, the decree was all boys should be thrown into the Nile. Moses ends up in the actual Nile. The only difference is he's in a basket. So instead of drowning in the Nile, he's, and maybe, that's, maybe that itself is a lesson, right? That what makes the Nile dangerous, and really any water, is when you don't have that protective layer, in this case the basket, that will help you float. So just to kind of you know, make this along the lines of the flood, the Noah uh, lesson, it's like when you have an ark, then even when the flood waters come, you have a safe haven, you have a, a, a place, a connection, a higher tether, and then even when the flood waters come, even when things get a little dicey, you're okay, not only okay, but you might even be able to rise higher than before. The challenge itself might spur you to something greater, as opposed to if you don't have that protection, not you, right? If, if we don't have that protection, then we might be susceptible to actually being overcome by the, by the water. So the decree is throw them into the Nile. It actually happens. But it's not the Egyptians. It's his mom. 
And it's not without a basket, it's with a basket. And it's not the cause of death, God forbid. It's a precipitator of life and salvation. I like that. And you're right, we do find a lot of water. The first plague is the Nile River turning to blood. We have the splitting of the sea. We have the collapse of the sea on the Egyptians. We have him hitting the rock. He's a guy, Moshe, he really lived up to his name. He was like a, he was a water guy. So just to kind of, you know, double back, you know, kind of head back to that Kabbalistic thing that I mentioned before, because I think that's, you know, maybe that's a way to, to, to kind of round out the conversation. Speaking of water. So terrestrial life and water life. It says in the Talmud, uh, maybe it's not the Talmud, it says somewhere, Whatever exists on dry land also exists under the sea. And what our sages, it's a Jewish thing, what our sages mean by that is, just like there are mountains, hills, valleys, on the land, you got the same stuff under the water. Look under the water, you have this and that. You have creatures that live on the land, you have creatures that live under the water. Everything is, is mirrored under the water, above the water. It's just, What's the difference? That one you can see and one you typically cannot see. I know if you're scuba diving, okay, fine. Scuba diving aside, but you look at the water and, and it, you look out at the ocean, you look at a lake, and you might be able to see right, right, right beneath your feet or right, you know, right in front of you, but when you look out, you don't see anything. Whereas when you look out at the land, you see. You see a tree, you see an animal, you see this. Okay. See different things. What's the message? Water represents the hidden realm, the realm that is hidden from sight. It's a deeper realm, a spiritual realm. Water, as I said before, is also this idea of all-pervasive, all-inundating, and it could be in a negative way or a positive way. In a positive way, it's this uh, just complete awareness and being sunk almost inside this divine, divine awareness. But getting back to the hiddenness and openness, we live in a in, in what, what the mystics call the revealed world, Alma de Iskalia, the revealed realm. Spiritual creatures live in Alma de Iskasia. These are Aramaic terms. Alma de Iskasia means the hidden realm, hidden worlds. We live in revealed worlds, they live in hidden worlds. Why hidden worlds? You can't see them. You can't see spirituality. You can't see a soul. You can't see an angel. You can't see heaven. We don't, when I say you, we, you and I with physical eyes, we can't, we can't see this. Up. What do we see? Tables and walls. And in front of me, some water bottles. That's what I see. We see stuff. We don't see spirit. Moses was a sea creature. I'm picturing like, you know, when they teach babies how to swim, like at a very young age, there's like this movement or whatever this, you put little babies in water and they're like, I'm like, oh my God, how is that even possible? But I guess we were swimming before we were walking. If you think about it, Right? All of us, all of us here on, all of us here in the terrestrial world, in the world of, in the land world, all of us began in liquid. All of us began in a, in a, um, in a state of, in a concealed state, right? Alma de Iskasi, concealed state, and in submerged in and surrounded by our source of life. So in essence, all of us are drawn from water, right? In essence, all of us have the potential to be Moses if we only remember who we are and what that's about. Moses never forgot. Maybe Moses has, you know, the memory and the, the connection. Wherever he goes, it's water, right? He walks and you're like, whoa, his, his shoes are wet. Like he's leaving... Everywhere he goes, he's, I'm just kidding, but like he's, he's, he's dripping with water. He's, he's in that water state of being. He's connected with the source, swimming in that source, and always Moshe, the man who is drawn from water. That's a, it's, a, it's a good place to be. It's a good place to be. So, what's the message for today? What's the call of the hour? Put on those flippers. Put on that mask and snorkel. Adjust your... Uh, your, uh, your wetsuit, and let's jump back into the water. The water, of course, is Torah. The water is connection. The water is spirituality. The water is God. Let's jump back into the water. And don't forget to jump out of the water, but retain 
the inspiration of the water, which is spirituality. All right, my friends, that's it for today. Hope you enjoyed the second reading. Tomorrow, my goal will be to do readings three and four. It's kind of like the Moses coming of age story. And then we'll be primed to read about the call that God puts out to Moses to be the Redeemer. Things move very quickly in the narrative. I mean, right now the story, life in Egypt, is really bad for the Jews. I mean, it's going to stay bad for like another week or so in the narrative, you know, in our conversations. But soon it's going to turn. And when it turns, it turns quickly, at least in the narrative. It took a few years for all this to play out. But in our narrative, you know, time is a little bit collapsed. So very excited to, uh, to continue this journey. Quick mention, quick scheduling note tonight. Don't forget, part three of three of the Kabbalah of the Matrix. You do not want to miss this. We talked about the red pill. We talked about the blue pill. Tonight, we talk about the essence. If you want to know what I'm talking about, join me live tonight, live on Zoom at 8 p.m. 7 Central, 5 Pacific. Why am I mentioning these time zones? I don't know. Check your local listings, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for the Cabal of the Matrix. The Matrix movie comes out tonight. My understanding is tonight or tomorrow. And uh, I'm sure that will be interesting. But we're going to do the Cabal of the Matrix, which is certainly even more interesting than anything the filmmakers could put out. Um, so join me for that. Also, I should mention, we have only, I think I did the math before, I think we only have 14 or 15 spots left. For the Chinese dinner Saturday night, join us for that. It's going to be a lot of fun. And then what else is upcoming? And then into January, I'm trying to think quickly. Into January, we have a lot of um, fun and exciting programming, including a live Zoom meditation session with Rabbi Wolf from Australia, live from Melbourne. We have Nomi, Mrs. Nomi Freeman teaching a new course called How to Think Like a Hasidic Master, which is really cool. We have also the new JLI meditation course coming up called Meditation from Sinai. A lot of great stuff coming up. We have in-person options, online options, both sometimes. So check, it, check out the website, intownjewishacademy.org. Sign up early, sign up often, and join us. Okay? Are you doing the uh, in-person Sunday uh, Kabbalah and coffee? That's a really good question. I am not sure. I am not sure yet. I actually, you vote for yes. I actually, it's pro probably not going to be great for me. Just based on, um, I don't know. It's very possible that it's not going to be in person. Yeah. So it goes. Yeah. Um, I, 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 if, if I had to bet, I'm going to say that I'm going to have to do it online. Just based on some logistics that, that's going on in my, in my life Sunday. Anyway, all right, but stay tuned. Okay, yes. Quick idea. Sure. After the third Kabbalah of the Matrix, the class tonight, wouldn't it be a great idea to have a movie, the original Matrix, and a study session recapping ah, the three? Not, not a bad idea. Not a bad idea. Let me think about it. No, no guarantees, but let me... Oh, hey, Reba's here. Whoa. Where did you come from? Yes, you can always go on the couch. All right. Um, I'll see you guys soon. Have a wonderful day. See you hopefully later. All right. Take care, everybody. Bye, Ray. Bye, Donna. Bye, Mark. Bye, Olia. Take care.